And please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. Welcome to those of you visiting with us. You've come on a rather unique morning. Our normal practice is to go verse by verse through books of the Bible so we understand them rightly, understand them in their context, and hopefully you'll understand why we're taking a couple of week break from the book of 1 Corinthians. We've hit 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It fits into a section where Paul is talking about a misunderstanding of spiritual gifts by the Corinthian church, by some in the Corinthian church. So 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is Paul's attempt to help shepherd the church at Corinth through the topic of spiritual gifts. Um, with that comes a 21st century understanding of spiritual gifts, or maybe misunderstanding even of spiritual gifts that um, we bring into passages like that. And so I've chosen with the uh, Council of the Elders to, to take a couple of weeks off from 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and to talk through biblical prophecy and biblical tongues. So that's my plan for today. Um, normally I have five pages of notes. I've got 11 so far, so, <laughs> so far. And uh, so we're going to split this up into at least two weeks. Uh, I'm not going to try to do this all at once. But my goal today is to talk about um, tongues and prophecy in the Scriptures. What were they then? And then next week I'll get into more of but what about the claims that they're for today or that they're um, somewhat different and those kind of differences are for today? So I'll talk about that next week. And I do want to say at the outset, this is not a matter of heresy. Um, this is not even a reason that you should go to a different church than another Christian. Um, this has been understood by theologians to be kind of a third tier issue, something that Christians agree and disagree on. Um, yet all issues, according to the Scriptures, are important. So the fact that it's third tier doesn't mean it's unimportant at all. It just means that it's not one of the gospel doctrines, the person and work of Christ, the Trinity, salvation by grace alone through faith alone. So this is something that different people in local churches have different views on. Now, I am going to teach for the next couple of weeks the view that I believe Scripture clearly calls us to, and it's the view that church history has had for 1950 years, which all of a sudden has changed in the last 70 or so. But I do want to be clear that um, this is something that even people in this own church might have disagreements on, and that's okay. It's okay to have differences of opinion with other believers in your church. See 1 Corinthians, see Ephesians, see Romans, see a number of the New Testament epistles. The point, though, that Paul would have us understand is that we must love one another, speak the word to one another, understand one another, and so therefore then be unified. I do hope to persuade you over the next couple weeks that tongues are what the Bible says they are, that prophecy is what the Bible says that it is. And I hope that that gives you clarity for even the times that we live in today. Again, if you've got a different view than I have, or that even church history may have, or that others today may have, I hope that you wouldn't feel beat up. This is me trying to shepherd a flock that I love, and trying to shepherd them in the way, again, that Christians have understood for a long time, for millennia. And I was also once like 
you if you hold a different view than I have today. I grew up in the charismatic movement. I'm very familiar with the claims, with the teachings. And so I hope to be a help and to come alongside you as a brother, not as your enemy in some way, okay? So I say those things from the outset. I'll talk more about the importance of understanding the, the wide spectrum of maybe people who might believe different than us. There are some who are heretics, and there are some who are wonderful gospel-believing brothers and sisters who um, have been a huge blessing to the church and continue to be. I'll talk more about that next week, okay? Um, well, we've got a lot of work to do. Here we go. Uh, this isn't a classic sermon. This, we're going to be flipping pages of the Bible quite a bit, kind of like an extended Bible study, if you will, okay? Um, again, I'm doing this because even, I mean, I've only gone through the first 11 verses of chapter 12 and the questions that you've already had for me. <laughs> well, what about this? Is this for today? What, what are tongues today? What was prophecy then? Wonderful questions. And it's almost as if, you know, sometimes you preach and there, there's a clear text, you might have a question or two. But the questions kind of dominate our whole walking through the text together as, as it relates to this theme. So again, it's almost as if I can't walk through 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 without taking extended time to talk about maybe differences of opinions that people have today. So that's why we're doing that. I believe that this, uh, these three chapters that we've been going through or are in the process of going through, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, are some of the most difficult passages to interpret for the 21st century reader. Some of the most difficult passages to interpret for the 21st century reader. And here's why. If you want to faithfully interpret the Scriptures, you need to have an understanding of what was, what was true and what was happening in the time that they were written. So if you want to understand what Moses is saying in Genesis through Deuteronomy, you need to understand something of the people he's talking to that were in the wilderness in between Egypt and the Promised Land. If you want to know things about 1 Corinthians, if you want to know the right interpretation of 1 Corinthians or Galatians or Acts or whatever whatever book you pick, you want to understand who the primary audience was and what they understood by the words that were being communicated to them. But today, in these three chapters of 1 Corinthians, we often, many people, often kind of leap from the first century understanding and go to a 21st century understanding and start there. Well, I think tongues means this. I think prophecy means this. Without really digging and looking at what the Corinthians would have understood as um, in terms of the word tongues or the word prophecy. So if you want to be faithful to biblical interpretation, you start with the context to which they were written, and then you appropriately connect it to where you're at today. Not the reverse of that. I think this verse means, well, it doesn't matter what I think it means. What matters is what did the Corinthians understand it to mean, and that's therefore what I should understand it to mean. I want to give you a couple of examples of this. If, uh, if you were reading about an important political figure, let's say in uh, colonial America or um, in, in the New England of the 1690s, okay? So you, wanna, you, you find a person, maybe it's Cotton Mather, maybe it's someone else around that time, and uh, you're reading about this, this political figure or this religious figure, and you want to know more about them. And you pick up a document... And it says about this figure that you're reading about that he was an extremely gay man. You might 
then say, that man was a homosexual. That man, um, you know, had a, had a liking for other men or, or whatever. You might say that, but you'd be wrong, wouldn't you? Because that word gay did not mean that then. In 1690, that word did not mean what it means today. The word gay in 1690 meant someone who had a joyful demeanor, a carefree demeanor, someone who's happy. And if you say, well, that person was a homosexual because it says, this document says that they were gay. Well, that document was written in 1690. And if you then go on to tell other people that that person was a homosexual, you'd be lying. You'd be literally rewriting history. And you can't do that to history. And we can't do that to the Bible. There's a story about Queen Anne in England at the conclusion of, or at the, um, who was at uh, St. Paul's Cathedral when it was finally completed. She was given, being given a tour of St. Paul's Cathedral with the architect, Sir Christopher Wren. And someone in the, in the party asked Queen Anne, what do you think? What's your opinion? St. Paul's Cathedral. She answered, it's awful and artificial. Christopher Wren was deeply moved and appreciated the compliment. She said, it's awful and artificial. Well, what does awful mean to us? It's horrible, artificial, fake. It's not what she meant. Awful then meant awe-inspiring, awe-invoking. Artificial meant full of skill and art. It was a compliment. But if you read a book on that account and you say, ah, Queen Anne said that it was awful and artificial, and then you say she didn't like St. Paul's Cathedral, you'd be rewriting history. That wouldn't be true. You may be able to see where I'm going with this. We must interpret the Bible according to how the original hearers would have understood it. And that's how we must interpret 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. The way the church understood 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, again, for about 1950 years, was one way. And in popular American evangelicalism and even some other countries, in the last 70 years, it's, it's, these words have taken on a different meaning. We can't start with the last 70 years. We have to start with what, they what the original hearers understood. Now, today, people have grown up assuming that this new interpretation is true, and many are almost appalled if you say anything otherwise. The current interpretation of what tongues were, and even prophecy, what prophecy was, doesn't match up with almost all of Christian history. Again, my goal is to teach for two weeks on what these sign gifts were in the first century and whether they are still operational in the same way today. And then we'll continue on through chapters 12 to 14. So for our outline for these next two weeks, we're going to do this. Two questions concerning prophecy in tongues. Two questions concerning prophecy in tongues. Today we'll get to the first question. Uh, what were prophecy in tongues in the Bible? And I'll talk at the beginning about prophecy and then about tongues. 
And if you do have questions in response to these messages, um, I would encourage you to listen to the two all the way through. I think that maybe some of your questions could be alleviated then. If not, still, you can talk to me and the other elders at our church. Be happy to walk through these with you as brothers and sisters, again, not as enemies. <clears throat> First, what was prophecy in the Bible? I'll give you a definition here from Tom Schreiner. And if you're looking for a book to help understand spiritual gifts, I cannot recommend Tom Schreiner's book enough. I believe it's just called Spiritual Gifts. Tom Schreiner, professor at Southern Seminary. It's a phenomenal book, very understandable, easy to read. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great book. Tom Schreiner says this about prophecy. It's communication with infallible words from God. Communication from infallible words, with infallible words from God. These divine messages are given spontaneously by God to his messengers. So it's a spontaneous message given to a person with the gift of prophecy that would then communicate it to the church. And those words were infallible, without error. Now again, understand the context of when the New Testament was written. Understand the context of when the book of 1 Corinthians was written. Or even the context of the happenings in the book of Acts. There are no Gospels. The Corinthians did not, as I've told you before, have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they also didn't have the New Testament epistles. There was no this in front of them. Now, they had the Old Testament scriptures. They had the scrolls. They wouldn't have had them all in their own homes. They would have been in Jewish synagogues. But they didn't have any written documents about what Jesus Christ had just recently done in just a few years before and what was happening in the church and even what God wanted to be done in the church. They didn't have anything written. It was all passed down orally. People now, if you were at the, there at the time of uh, the writings of these letters, 1 Corinthians in particular, people then at that point were being called to believe in the slain and risen Nazarene Jesus Christ. And they're to pattern their lives after him and to believe in him. But how do you pattern your life after Jesus Christ? That's a good question. How are his followers supposed to live? Who should their leaders be? How should they gather themselves together? When should they gather themselves together? Who should they send away as missionaries? Anybody who's zealous, or should there be any sort of qualifications? How are they to function as husbands and wives, mothers and fathers? How are they to function if one's a slave and one's an owner of a slave? How do we do that as Christians? There's no Colossians 3 to obey or to know. They need the Scriptures, but they don't have them. The Corinthians didn't have the New Testament Scriptures. So Jesus sends the apostles and prophets to His followers, to His new followers. Jesus has ascended into heaven. He even told them, we talk so much about chapters 13 through 17 of John. It's such an important section of Scripture to understand if you're going to understand what comes later. Jesus, in that night, on that night, in chapter 16 of John, talks about the fact that he's going to send the Holy Spirit to the apostles. 
He's going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to bring to mind things that they need to understand. And what did the apostles then do? They communicated it to the people who were believing then in Jesus Christ. So Jesus told this to the apostles. He died, rose again, appeared to many witnesses, ascended, and now the apostles are the ones speaking his word, speaking his message to the unbelievers. Once they become believers, the apostles teach them how to live. And they write letters of which have been preserved for us, the infallible word of God. So thank God for 1 Corinthians, for Romans, for 2 Thessalonians, for Revelation. It was God's intent to breathe out his message perfectly through the apostles and the prophets for it to be written down and known. The scriptures are such a gift to the church, have been for 2,000 years. But these, this first generation of Christians, these early generations of Christians, didn't have the scriptures. And so Jesus even says before he ascends to heaven that he's going to give the apostles and prophets to speak his words to the church. And they're going to be perfect words so that people know exactly what to do. Prophecy itself was a wonderful gift of God to his church. In fact, Ephesians 2.20 says that our faith, the faith that we all hold to, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the ones who prophesied. Let me just give you a little tour. I told you to turn to Genesis 11. I just wanted to make sure you're awake. Okay, now we're not even going to start there. That comes later. Okay, turn to Acts 11, all right? Acts 11. I'm just going to give you a little bit of a flyover tour of some of the prophets in the early church, and I want you to notice a few things about their prophecy. Acts 11, 27 to 30, we're introduced to a prophet named Agabus. Acts 11, verse 27, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So see what's happening here. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would come and guide apostles and hear prophets into truth so that the church would be helped, communicated to by God. And so Agabus, someone filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit speaking through Agabus, says there's going to be a famine coming. And so, verse 29... So the disciples determined every one according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So the Holy Spirit knows there's going to be a famine, sends a human messenger, sends someone with the gift of prophecy, Agabus, to tell this church at Antioch, there's going to be a famine. Other brothers and sisters are going to need some support from you all. Holy Spirit caring for his church through prophecy. Go to Acts 13. Acts 13, 1 and 2. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. I, I just want to pause and talk through all of those people. One of these new believers was 
a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch who tried Jesus before he was crucified. Anyway, God, God's church is amazing, who he saves, who they knew, what they were involved in. Anyway, let's continue. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Notice the Holy Spirit speaking. Now, it doesn't say here it was through any particular person, through a prophet, but that's how we understand it. Again, the Holy Spirit's been speaking in an Acts through prophecy, through people who are gifted to receive prophecy. And the Holy Spirit speaks, send these two, set apart for me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work that I have called them, send them. After fasting and praying, they lay their hands on them, they send them out. So the Holy Spirit's speaking to his church. Some of you understand the beauty of this and how wonderful it is. You uh, got a decision between taking a job in Toledo or Toronto, and you come across Acts 13, your Bible reading, you think, if Holy Spirit, if you can just do that type of thing right now, just tell me Toledo or Toronto, okay? But this is what he was doing in the early days of the church. They didn't have scriptures. They didn't, they didn't have information about who to send, what qualifications they needed to have. And so the Holy Spirit makes it clear to the church, send these guys. Acts 15, turn over a page or two. Acts 15, verse 32. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. Okay, so God gives these two men, Judas and Silas, the ability to prophesy for him. And what do those words that they speak do for the people? They encourage and they strengthen them. Verse 33, and after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. I highlight this passage because you see a couple of word gifts, speaking gifts being used, and you show that they're kind of different. You see they're kind of different. Judas and Silas bring prophecy. They speak these words, and they strengthen and encourage the church. Paul and Barnabas in 35 remain there after Judas and Silas have left, and theirs isn't prophecy. So some people say, well, prophecy is just speaking the Word of God or teaching the Bible. Well, it is speaking the Word of God, but, but it's not teaching the Bible. Think of prophecy as spontaneous, infallible information to a church without the Scriptures that needs guidance from the Holy Spirit and needs encouragement, evidently, and strengthening, evidently. Teaching and preaching is different. We know from Paul's ministry and other places that he would take the Scriptures, that he would point to the scrolls, the Old Testament scrolls, and show, see, Jesus is the Christ. See Isaiah 25, he's the Messiah. See Isaiah 53, see Genesis 3, see Psalm 22, he's the Christ. And he would show them and teach them that Jesus was the Christ. And he would proclaim, he would preach to them. So that's not just preaching, teaching and preaching aren't even the same. Teaching, he'd make these logical connections for them. Preaching, he'd persuade them, there's pathos there. He'd try to persuade them to believe that. So, Judas and Silas prophesying to the church that encourages and strengthens them. Paul and Barnabas serving the church by teaching and preaching to them. Each of those gifts being blessings 
to the church, but they're different. Again, prophecy, spontaneous, teaching and preaching, more calculated, if you will. Acts 21.9, you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to read you. Get, get ready to turn to Ephesians, okay? Uh, Acts 21.9, we learn that the daughters, four daughters, four unmarried daughters of Philip the Evangelist prophesy. So prophecy wasn't just for men. Teaching and preaching were, again, see 1 Corinthians 11, see 1 Timothy 2, but also see 1 Corinthians 11 and notice that women were prophesying in the churches also, speaking forth from God, given messages for the church from God that were infallible, that were perfect. 1 Corinthians 11 that we looked at a number of weeks back, the problem wasn't that women were prophesying, it was that they were doing it in an unsubmissive way. We talked through that. You can go back and listen to that message if you want. But prophecy itself wasn't the problem there. Women have been gifted by the Spirit to prophesy, Acts 21, 9, the four unmarried daughters of Philip the Evangelist. Now, Ephesians, Ephesians 3, just a couple more examples of prophecy. Ephesians 3, 4 to 6. Paul says this, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now, when you think mystery, don't think of Scooby-Doo, okay? Alfred Hitchcock. Think, think revelation that, that was given previously or that, that, that hasn't really been understood, so there's this explaining of it now. So, so ah, I've been given the understanding of something that happened in the past. Now, I'm connecting the dots here. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, and it, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by His Holy Spirit. So the apostles are connecting dots for people and teaching them about Christ. As they look back to their Old Testament, they're seeing teachings about Christ, and it's been this mystery, and now they're understanding it. God's making known the mystery of Christ. And he didn't just give the apostles the ability to connect those dots, but now the prophets also have been given this gift to teach the church these mysteries of Christ. Verse 6, and here's one of the mysteries that Paul's writing about. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's staggering. If you're a Jewish Christian in Ephesus at this time, and you're looking at Gentile Christians going, I don't know about these guys. I mean, we understand who the Messiah is. Our writings have been telling us what to look for. And now Paul has taught us that Christ is the one who's the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies. And the prophets who are speaking to us today are showing us that Jesus Christ is the one. But these people don't have that history. I don't know about them. Well, Paul writes and says that one of the prophecies that are given is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. So the first century church, without the Scriptures, would need to know that it was God's plan to unite Jew and Gentile under Jesus Christ. Now, if I ask you, how, how do you know that God's plan was to unite Jew and Gentile, therefore everyone in the world, everyone from around the world, 
How do you know that it was God's plan to unite them in Jesus Christ? You would probably point me to New Testament scriptures that they didn't have at the time. Therefore, the need for prophecy. Therefore, the need for someone to say, in the name of Jesus Christ, Gentiles are meant to be joiners together with Jewish believers, Jew and Gentile together worshiping Jesus Christ. We are together fellow heirs. We are one house. They didn't have the scriptures that you would point to for that truth. They needed that from God spoken to them before they had the scriptures. Turn over to Ephesians 4.11. Talking about the gifts that God, that Christ has given to the church. He says this, and he gave apostles, the prophets. Now right there, again, it's not talking about the Old Testament prophets in this case. Now, I think you could make an argument for them to be included, but he's talking about this new era in history after Jesus has ascended. He gave the apostles, gave the prophets, those speaking prophecy. He gave the evangelists. People would travel around and proclaim the gospel to places that didn't have it yet. And the shepherds, the ones who would stay in a location and shepherd those new people of God. That's where we get the word pastors. And teachers, again, referring to instruction given based on Old Testament truths written down in the scrolls. So he gave prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. Many people will argue, and I think it's a good argument to be made, that this is kind of the, the, the flow of how people would be guided into truth starting from after Christ ascended, starting from Pentecost, if you will, until now. He gave apostles. We know those, their office has ceased. Now, again, some people today, a small group, make the claim that apostles still exist today. We'll get to that more next week, Lord willing. I, I, I got to cut it off somewhere. I don't, I don't know. There's so much information. Most of Christian history has understood apostles ceased back then. Okay, apostles were the ones who had seen the risen Christ communicating His Word. So He gave apostles, then He gave prophets, those speaking prophecy, and then evangelists. Again, most people think of this as a first century group that went around proclaiming the gospel. If you think evangelists are still today, that office, that's okay too. But now He's given shepherds and teachers because we know that when Peter's writing in 1 Peter chapter 5, He's writing about shepherding the flock. And when Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he talks about them shepherding the flock. So we understand that this is going to be something that continues on. Shepherds and teachers being given to the church. Verse 12, why are all these offices given? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, Go back to Ephesians 2.20. Uh, let's start in 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, Jew and Gentile. Guess what? You're family now. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Again, almost all of church history has known and understood that the office of apostle has ceased, I would argue, based on what he's writing in Ephesians, including here, 
that the office of prophet has ceased also. They were there for a time before the scriptures had been written to help guide the church, encourage the church, strengthen the church. But we today are built on the truth that they gave. Our faith, 21st century Christians, are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So so get it, you're building a house or you're building a church or a temple, whatever you're building, you're building some sort of structure. You build a foundation. The cornerstone, where it all starts from, is Jesus Christ. The foundation that goes from that stone, the apostles' teaching and the prophets' prophecies, again, much of which we have in Acts, they lay the foundation. Now, the foundation is done. I'm no builder, but I don't think the 30th floor is considered the foundation, okay? The foundation is the foundation, and then we're to build on top of that. Built on the foundation, verse 20, of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. Again, I think by implication there, the apostles and prophets were foundational, built on Jesus Christ, and we grow from there. We've got evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, even now, pastors, teachers. The Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 14, those with the gift of prophecy were said to build up the church. They were a great blessing to the church. The Thessalonian church, 1 Thessalonians 5.20 says, do not despise prophecies. Of course not. They should not despise the prophets speaking in the name of God. People today take that and they take someone who claims to be a prophet who sometimes is wrong, sometimes is right, which is not the biblical view of prophecy. But the biblical view of prophecy is infallible. But people today say, if you don't believe what this guy on TV is saying, it's the same guy, by the way, asking you to give lots of money to him. If you don't believe him, you're despising prophecy. No, I believe that despising prophecy is what the Thessalonians would have believed despising prophecy meant in the first century. Don't despise those who then are speaking forth the message of God for you because you don't have the scriptures. You don't know what to do. You need God to speak, and he has determined then to speak through certain people to give you truth. So again, you can't say despising prophecy means something different than it meant in the first century and tell me that I've therefore got to believe your interpretation. No. What did the Thessalonians understand? That they should listen to the prophets sent by God, and they should have. Again, Shriner's definition. Prophecy is communication with infallible words from God. These divine messages are given spontaneously to God by His messengers. Now, tongues. Turn to Genesis 11. It should already open up to that since you were there earlier for a while. Genesis 11. We want to know what the Bible teaches about tongues. That's our goal. Let's just read about the account of the Tower of Babel. Genesis, the book about beginnings. How did this whole thing start? What happened once it started? It started off wonderfully. I mean, I mean, God created man and woman at the height of the created order that he'd been working on. I mean, th- this, is, this is great. And then Genesis 3, man and woman rebel. 
well, maybe their sons won't be that bad. Well, their son murdered their other son. Once rebellion enters the world, it's bad news. We see the pride of man in Genesis 5 and 6 on full display, chaos, rebellion. And then the Lord at the end of 6 calls this man named Noah to build a boat. God's going to destroy this earth in judgment. Right from the beginning of the Bible, God has created things good, man has sinned and rebelled, and that just gets worse and worse and worse. So God's going to start over, but God doesn't wipe out everybody. He's a savior by nature, so he saves the family. And he puts them in a boat, and there's a flood. He destroys the earth, and then after they come out, he says, okay, remember what I told Adam and Eve? Be fruitful, multiply, rule as if I would be ruling across the earth. Bring righteousness to the earth, govern the earth rightly. That didn't work out. But now Noah, we're starting with you. Here's, this, here's world 2.0. You, Noah, your family, be fruitful, multiply, rule the earth, reign over it like I would reign over it. And then we learn of Noah's three sons and the, the, them spreading out, obeying the Lord, spreading out and having children and children and children and children. And we start to see people groups spread out. But listen, All of those people groups now, different parts of the world, the known world at the time, they all still have the same language. Then we get to the Tower of Babel, 11.1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So again, the people of God, representing God, are supposed to be on the move, cover the planet. Then these people come to a plain in Shinar and they start rethinking whether they want to keep moving. And they said to one another, verse 3, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, who wanted them dispersed over the face of the whole earth? God. So they're rebelling against the mission of God to make His glory known all over the planet. And what coincides with that, by the way? Human pride. Verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. I love that. Just, he's just watching what's going on in the background, so to speak which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there, confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from all over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them from over the face of the earth. Their prideful and arrogant plan, disobedient plan, did not work because God saw to it that any human attempt at exalting themselves or ourselves will not work out in the end. He will frustrate those plans. And so he brings languages as a sign of judgment on the earth. 
I'm going to confuse their languages. They won't be able to complete this tower, won't be able to complete this city. I'm going to disperse them all over. And so now the fact that we've got India and Pakistan, excuse me, India and Pakistan, Ecuador and Canada, Mozambique and Poland is because it's judgment on the fact that there's been human pride. God dispersed them and changed their languages. He's going to frustrate their working together in a way that's rebellious toward God. He's going to frustrate that. So languages in chapter 11 are a judgment on the world. And then he picks a guy, Abraham. Hey, you, you're going to move somewhere. You're in this wonderful city right now, but I'm going to move you somewhere. And from you, I'm going to start this wonderful nation. So he disperses the nations. There's nations all over the face of the earth, but, he, but he's going to choose a particular nation to be his special people. And so he, he's going to start that nation with Abraham. And we can't go into all this now, but the, the details about how his family has started is rather amazing and miraculous. That's how God does things. But God, get, get this, he's going to pick a nation that's going to be his special nation. And listen, here's the grace of God. That nation is meant to be a light to the other nations. So God sends them out in judgment, frustrates their plans, but he's still gracious. And notice what he says in chapter 12 of Genesis. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, he's just brought a judgment on the families of the earth for their pride. But God, as I mentioned a little earlier, is a Savior by nature. So even in those nations that he's scattered, he's going to see to it that through Abraham and his message and his God, all those nations of the earth who are currently speaking different languages now are going to be blessed because they deserve it? No, because the Creator is just that gracious. Fast forward to Acts chapter 2. Go to Acts chapter 2. Obviously skipping over a lot of biblical history. But about 33 years before Acts chapter 2, an angel told a virgin that the Christ would be born from her, the Messiah, the hope of not just Israel, the Messiah who would be a light to the nations would be born from her. And so Jesus Christ is born, God in human flesh is here. And Jesus would go and proclaim things to those in Galilee, proclaim things to those in Jerusalem. Many of them would follow, many of them would reject, and then he would go up to Tyre and Sidon, and he would go to Gentile territory. What in the world is that? He goes to Abraham's people, and he goes to the people who should be believing through Abraham's message. He goes not just to Israel, but he goes to the Gentiles. Jesus showed that in his earthly ministry. 
He's the light to not just Israel, he's the light to the nations. And then he tells his disciples right before he leaves, I'm going to go to heaven, I'm going to leave you my spirit, and that's going to be better for you, and you all are going to scatter. Remember Babel? Ah, we don't want to move anymore. We like each other. We're pretty great, actually. We're going to build our way to God. Nope. Keep scattering. God is one who wants us to scatter to proclaim his name everywhere. And here, as he ascends to heaven, Acts chapter 1, he tells the disciples, you go and get my message to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. Get this message everywhere. Nothing's changed since the time of Adam in that sense. Nothing's changed since the time of Noah. Nothing's changed since the time of Abraham. So guys, get this message that's even greater now because it's about me and what I've done in accomplishing salvation. Get this message everywhere. And so Jesus ascends. The disciples are looking up. Then shortly after that, they're gathered together. and We come to Acts chapter 2. He's told them in one, get this message everywhere. What happens in Acts chapter 2? When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now we already got to pause. <laughs> They're celebrating Pentecost, the feast where they would celebrate the end of the harvest that God had, applied, God had provided abundantly for them. They're celebrating God's provision. You know the other thing that the Jews would celebrate at the time of Pentecost? The giving of the law of Moses. God speaking to his people so they can know him and know how to live. So they're there celebrating God's abundant provision to them, and they're celebrating the fact that God has spoken to them. It's at that feast that the gift of tongues is given, languages, communication from God. Verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, I would argue the best way to communicate or translate the word tongues is languages. That's how the Corinthians would have understood him, languages. But we can call them tongues here as the ESV writes. Divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on them. Verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, let's not take the Holy Spirit for granted here. He didn't fill everybody throughout human history. But Jeremiah the prophet and Ezekiel the prophet promised that one day there'd be a new covenant coming, a new relationship between God and his people. And you know what would be different about this? The Holy Spirit would fill them. He would be on the inside of them. And he would write his laws on their hearts. They would know what to do from the inside out. They would know. John Stott here says of Acts 2, there are two new covenant promises that they would have in view here. The fact that he's putting his spirit inside of them and that he's putting his law into their minds and on their hearts. Verse 5 of Acts 2. 
Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Nations. Genesis 11. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya, Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. These are known languages being spoken. And I do not want you to miss the fact that the Bible traces redemption history from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible is one giant story. The Bible is a message about the salvation of God through Jesus Christ so that we could be a people who dwell with our King. The Bible communicates one story. And this story looked bad in Genesis 11. But there was a little bit of hope, right? It looked bad. There's judgment. I'm going to confuse their languages. But then Abram, I'm going to start a new nation with you. And through you, all the people that I have just judged, all the people from around the world, they're going to be blessed through the information that you have. And then fast forward and Jesus comes, the hope of the world. And when Jesus says, I'm going to give my spirit to you guys, you apostles, I'm going to give my spirit for you to take it around the world. What we have in Acts chapter 2 at the celebration of Pentecost is a reversal of Babel. It is Jesus communicating the message of grace and hope in him through the languages. This is Jesus being gracious to the world. So it is really hard to say that these languages are something different now. It doesn't fix our minds. That argument doesn't fix our minds on the glorious message of hope that God has meant to send to the entire world. This is what languages and tongues are all about. God is gracious to communicate His gospel truth about His Son, Jesus Christ. And on the day of Pentecost, when He sends His Spirit and after he's ascended to heaven, Jesus ascended to heaven, on the day of Pentecost, we get this huge miracle come where people from around the known world at the time start to hear the works of God and start to speak the works of God in their own language. So you've got this group who speaks one language and all these other people hear in their own language. So they can then go to their areas, go to their homes, and what would they do? They would start to spread the news about the works of God. And if you look at a map of the first century at this time, you see Luke moving us from east to west. There's this movement. It's almost like you expect this kind of wave to go throughout the globe where the works of Jesus Christ are being known and the salvation that he offers are being known. That's the point of the gift of tongues. And it's beautiful. It's amazing. The biblical gift of tongues is a sign of God's grace and his power and him keeping his promises to Abraham. I told you I'd bless the nations through you. 
Now I'm starting to get this message to the nations. Tongues are a reversal of Babel. God's mighty works aren't just proclaimed in Hebrew anymore. Now other languages are being used to communicate the mighty works of God. Consider this. In Babel, people were supposed to spread out to proclaim the Lord's glory. They did not. They sought to build a way to heaven themselves, and God judges them for that. But at Pentecost, people from other nations are gathered now into one place again. And what do we learn about the God who scatters them in judgment or previously scattered the nations in judgment? We also learn that He's merciful. He communicates His mighty works in their languages. But that's not all, is it? The people in Genesis 11, because of their human pride, sought to show how wonderful they were and they could build their way to heaven. Did God let that happen? No. You cannot get to God by your own achievements. What happened when Jesus Christ came to the earth? God himself came down. Remember in Genesis 11, God came down to look at the tower? You could just see him. What are they doing? God came down again. 2,000 years ago, he came down in human flesh, and he didn't stand up just, you know, 100 feet above the earth, kind of look down, shake his head. He himself came, Jesus Christ came as a slave, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He experienced the curse that the people that he was among were part of propagating. And he loved them, and he came to them, and he taught them, and he showed them that he was God, and he told them that he was salvation, he told them that he was light, he told them that he was living water, he told them that he was the eternal bread of life, he told them all of this, he told them he hasn't come for judgment, he's coming for grace, he will come for judgment one day, repent and believe in me. God came to the earth, and he didn't just hover over the pride of it all, he came down and experienced the suffering because he loves the people and sought to save them. The tower shows judgment. Pentecost shows grace. The tower, the people of the nations were scattered with their languages to confuse them because of their pride. At Pentecost, you see the nations gathered together, told of the mighty works of God in their own language so that they would all know. God is graciously a communicating God. Do not ever take your Bible for granted. He is gracious to communicate to us. The nations could not, by their own human ingenuity, build their way to heaven. No tower, no human will, no exertion of power, no banding together of nations will lead people to God. The only way a person can have heaven, and therefore a reconciled relationship to God, is if God himself makes himself available, and if God himself communicates that he is willing to save. And he did. He communicated. He spoke to us. The nations built a tower and couldn't make it to God. Christ came from heaven to earth because God determined to dwell among us. 
Their salvation plan was frustrated. His salvation plan was accomplished. And he determined to communicate this to them in their own languages so that they would know. Pentecost is the reversal of Babel. The Bible tells a redemption story. To say that the gift of tongues is something different is to not understand the scarlet thread of Scripture running through it. The thread that shows the blood of the Lamb in Exodus and the Lamb slain in Revelation 5. And the nation's place in all of that, judged because of their pride, but given grace because of Jesus Christ. And even in the Great Commission, this is the series we started our church off in because we didn't want to forget our mission ever. It's to make God known throughout the nations, to make Him known because He's a God who speaks. He accomplished salvation, and then He calls us to speak about it. And He sends that message throughout the nations, which leads us to ask the question, why would the gift of tongues be brought to Corinth? It's hardly ever mentioned anymore in the New Testament. Why Corinth? Corinth was an international trade city, like Panama today. It's been said that there are over 20 languages prominently spoken in Panama. It's, a similar, it's similar geographically to Corinth, a place where people come from north and south, come from all over and go through, people from all different languages. What a place for God to make known His works as they then leave there and go to their home and to this home and to that home and to that home. It makes all the sense in the world that the Corinthians would be given the gift of languages. I told you the Bible tells the story and languages are included in that. And I told you it tells the story from beginning to end. Genesis, we stopped in Acts. Let's turn to the end. Let's go to Revelation. Revelation 5. And while you're turning to Revelation 5, I'll say this. Heaven is praising Christ because He saves people from among the languages. So if heaven is focused on something and understands a word a particular way, I think we should also understand it that way and should think of it in light of that. Revelation 5, 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Isn't that good? Slain lambs don't stand. But Jesus rose from the dead. A lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns, it's powerful. With seven eyes, it's all-knowing. Which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. God's spirit is everywhere. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. 
from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom of priests, a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Don't you love that? Adam, go everywhere on the earth. Noah, go everywhere on the earth. Abraham, go everywhere on the earth. Jesus, right before Pentecost. Guys, get this everywhere on earth. Heaven celebrates the Lamb who gives his message in every single language. And then those languages, those people who hold those languages, who have submitted to the Lamb, bowed the knee to the Lamb, worshiped the Lamb, they reign on the earth. Tongues are the reversal of Babel for the glory of Christ. Tongues are languages that communicate the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the slain and risen lamb for his glory. It's been said that the nations are a gift to Jesus for what he did on the cross. And he sought before the scriptures were written to send his message far and wide through languages. So God has demonstrated that he's a graciously communicative God, one that wants his message everywhere. He demonstrated that in Acts. Revelation worships him for that. And so it's important that we understand rightly the gift of languages. Again, there are questions you have, <laughs> understandably. If you grew up with a different teaching than that, that's okay. That's one of the reasons pastors and teachers are given to teach the word. Um, Want to help you with that truth. So we just got to stop. <laughs> We're supposed to take the Lord's table together. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace in opening your mouth. Thank you for your grace and having the scriptures written down. Thank you for your grace in speaking to us, to the apostles and prophets. Thank you for your grace to the nations. If you wouldn't have loved nations, we wouldn't be reconciled to you. So we thank you for being a savior and a communicator. We pray that you would give us clarity as to what these gifts were so that we can best understand them Pray for all of us that there be a humility in us. Uh, for those of us that hold to this truth, that there wouldn't be an arrogance, but simply a humility and an awe. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I always